Hello from all of us at From the Front Row. My name is Emma Metter and I'm joined by Steve Saunier. Today we'll be chatting with Dr. Tala Alrusen. Dr. Alrusen received her MPH in epidemiology from our very own University of Iowa College of Public Health and her medical degree from Cairo University. After completing a Bernard Bone Fellowship in Global Health at the Harvard T. Chan School of Public Health, she joined the Department of Global Public Health, University of California, San Diego, two years ago as a postdoctoral fellow and is now an assistant professor in medicine there. She is an Atlantic Fellow for Equity in Brain Health at the University of California, San Francisco, and an activist on social justice issues, especially for those most marginalized in society. Dr. Alrasan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Let's start with your path into public health. Was there something that really sparked your interest or made you think that's where you wanted to end up? Yeah, so my whole life story really is about public health. I grew up in the Middle East in a country where you know public health was not a distinct science, but there were a lot of um, social determinants of health, if you want, such as living in a war zone. You know, we're in a country in Jordan that is surrounded by conflict areas, Iraq, Syria, Israel and Palestine, and Saudi Arabia. I grew up with a lot of social unrest issues. And although the country is highly educated, education is very important where most of the country receives their university degrees um, at an early age, I felt um, that, you know, I wanted to be a doctor, but at the same time, I wanted to learn about issues outside medicine, issues outside the clinical setting. So I was one of the few in the country that got a full scholarship to study medicine at the oldest uh, medical school in the Middle East and the most prestigious is Cairo University Med School. And there I was exposed to a lot of issues where the same patients keep coming back to the clinic with the same issues. So I felt that what I'm doing by, you know, just examining them and telling them about the physical issues that they have and prescribing medications, I'm not really dealing with health literacy issues, what happens outside the clinic. So I had a lot of questions about that. That also was topped by my experience as a physician with Doctors Without Borders. So I was recruited by Doctors Without Borders to their headquarters in Geneva. And then I became a volunteer physician in Yemen. And also there I was introduced to the issue of chewing cot. I don't know if, if, you, if you know about cot, but this is a special herb that acts like a tobacco that people chew and it's a stimulant and it causes so many health problems such as orphan-jail cancers, you know, delirium, mental health problems. So no matter what, I tried to do by prescribing medications, although we don't have medications for that kind of habit. Um, I felt I had to do a lot of, uh, you know, education on what happens outside the clinic. So again, that kind of made me very interested in what happens outside and how that links to human health. And as we all know, you know, according to the World Health Organization, health is not just the merely, merely the absence of disease, but it's rather you know, social, mental, spiritual well-being. All of those are very important elements for a person to be called healthy. So yeah, all my experiences, all my life stories and where I lived before, I felt that most of what affects health is really social determinants and that's the core element of public health. 
And hitting on that point of social determinants of health and, and specifically the areas that you've worked within, I do want to congratulate you for your first ever K-23 grant to examine refugee health. That's a very exciting achievement. And you've noted in the past that there's very little research being done into how being a refugee actually impacts one's health, even though migration and displacement are considered social determinants of health. Can you provide some background into what you're looking to study? Sure. Actually, you know, I was um, a physician looking after migrants and refugees back home. So I volunteer as a Doctor Without Borders physician in Zatayu refugee camp in Jordan. And most of the problems that refugees present with have to do with this, you know, my route or what happened during migration, the trauma they've been subjected to, either physical, mental, social, you know, the journey, all the walking they do. And no matter what I do by digging up literature and trying to find literature on that, there was nothing. Unfortunately, most of our, uh, our resources and expertise in health go towards instant kind of services with refugees, right? So we treat uh, displacement as an acute problem rather than a chronic problem. And that's what resulted in the lack of literature and research, which is really huge and devastating. And, you know, when I was thinking, what can I do as a researcher to help with that? How can I apply my knowledge in epidemiology and as a physician to kind of increase the evidence, to help other doctors in other places and other practitioners, to kind of inform policies, to design interventions that would work for this population. I felt that I should try to kind of push for more refugee health research, especially here in the United States. You know, it's one of the major producers of scientific research worldwide. And um, yes, my grant was the first training grant. It's a training grant, it's a five-year grant. Uh, it's called a patient-oriented research grant. Mid-career level people kind of apply for these grants. They're highly competitive. About 5 to 10% of all grants get funded from all across the country. And this was the first grant to really look at refugee health, and specifically refugees, people who have been admitted in the United States as refugees. And we're looking here at hypertension as a disease model, and we're looking at uh, really intervening at the uncontrolled hypertension epidemic that's very prevalent in refugees. Kind of going off that, in your recent article, Displacement in COVID-19, Double Marginalization, you note that your research has been focused on health disparities in marginalized communities. Can you elaborate on some of the patterns you found in your previous work? Sure, actually my research uh, career started in Iowa. So uh, <laughs> this happened in 2013 when I started my MPH. I got introduced to Dr. Bob Wallace, who's an amazing researcher, world-renowned researcher in aging. He's a professor emeritus now at your school. And he is the person that kind of was my advisor, my mentor. When I went to him and told him, hey, listen, I'm from Jordan. I'm in Iowa. What can I do to diversify the research portfolio here? And at the same time, uh, look at solving big problems. So he would laugh and he would tell me, hey, you're too young to do this, but okay, let's try something. So I kept going at really difficult populations and difficult problems. So my practicum for my MPH, I chose it to be at the Iowa Medical and Classification Center, which is the correctional facility. 
who's nobody from all of UIowa has worked with before. They came here and gave us a lecture, those correctional staff uh, at the Iowa Medical and Classification uh, Center. And they were talking about, um, you know, issues they see with patients who are incarcerated. And I was so intrigued by that. I kept thinking of the same refugees I work with in Jordan who are in refugee camps, who live within certain boundaries, who are not allowed outside. And I was thinking to myself, you know, there's a lot there that we, that is similar in terms of experiences, a human experience, you know, people aging in, in prisons or refugee camps. So I went to Dr. Bobolis and I told him I want to do my practicum there. And um, he said, okay, let's try to talk to them. And we did talk to them and we did produce some really neat research that was the first of its kind to really look at uh, prisoners, older prisoners uh, from the entire state. That was the kind of research that was really kind of all the media was interested about and it got published in, in, in a good uh, journal. And um, you know, Vice News and other media outlets were very interested in. So, you know, in prisoners, I was able to demonstrate that there are issues with aging when you are in confined settings. The same is what I'm seeing with refugees now throughout my research and seeing that mental health is a big issue in these populations. Obesity is an issue, although in refugees, it's rather the opposite, right, because of food scarcity in that, in that setting. But lack of physical activity is across both populations. Another population I was very interested in always with Dr. Bob Wells, since he's, you know, focused on aging, was older adults and particularly vulnerable older adults. So some of my research also looked at older people who live in trailers in mobile homes. Those tend to be of lower socioeconomic status. And we were the first to look at a national representative sample of older adults who live in mobile homes you know, or trailers. And we were able to demonstrate that they have poorer mental health, poorer cognitive function, and poorer physical health in general. And we were trying to argue that putting people in, in small confined settings also again, such as a mobile home, is not good for them, especially if they have disabilities of this kind. So a lot in common, um, as you can see, from populations that you wouldn't normally think of comparing. That's a fantastic parallel between those ones. And it, you think about it a little bit more once you see it on paper, right? How similar these populations could be, even though they are from very different parts of the world. One of the areas that I want to focus on in this population that we're talking about is that idea of mental health trauma. And we know refugee populations do experience this adversely compared to other populations, but more specifically how mental health trauma can affect memory functions, aging in general. We know that Older Americans and populations worldwide are more vulnerable to COVID-19. They're drastically affected by displacement. Can you talk more about the effects of mental health trauma and kind of relating this to this whole equation? That's a great question, Steve. And I think, uh, again, it's, it's the point in time when um, what's happening now with the you know, pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, is showing us that nobody is immune to these kind of stressors, right? So natural disasters, displacement because of conflict and violence, all these things are real threats to public health. And now, as we can see, pandemics with viruses like, uh, you know, such as coronavirus, like the novel coronavirus. So, you know, with, with, with mental health, I think 
this country is going to kind of battle with mental health issues because of the unfamiliar strict lockdown situation. What's going to happen after, you know, we control this pandemic? There are a lot of people losing their jobs. There are a lot of people suffering, you know, the, the loss in life, as we can see, people are dying. So mental health is going to be a problem and it's already been a problem in the American society. Now in refugees, all studies are showing that more than half usually of them have a diagnosis of, of a mental health disorder. Those are usually depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. And in the population I work with in particular in Jordan, one in three people have had suicidal thoughts and have tried to end their life at some point. So it's really kind of a difficult topic. Now, we know that global aging is a problem, right? The world is aging. And we know that there isn't enough research to catch up with what's happening. And we know that Alzheimer's disease is a big problem globally that will increase in scale and scope. And you know, the Middle East, where I come from, we're completely underprepared for it because our systems, our governments, our, our you know, our even culture of aging is not well equipped to deal with that, right? We don't have nursing homes in Jordan, for example. While here there is, you know, there is some infrastructure, although older adults here kind of grapple with socioeconomic status issues and all of that, which is similar worldwide. So I think there isn't enough evidence to, li to link mental health uh, and cognition together. We have learned from U.S. veterans, for example, that after they come back, they return from their service abroad, they are more likely to be forgetful and they're more likely to develop memory problems, especially Alzheimer's disease. And I was trying also to look at the flip side of the story. What about refugees? You know, are they also who are similar in exposures, right? They have been subjected to trauma. They are in war zones as well. Are they likely also to be forgetful? Now, I see a lot of patients, refugee patients in Zatari camp who come to me and say, yes, we are forgetful at an earlier age. And do you think it's linked to the type of trauma that we have had? I look up the literature, I don't find anything there. So this is my hope to kind of try to uh, focus all my energy now, most of my projects on studying those links. That's great that you're going to go in and fill in that knowledge gap. We're seeing that kind of in the workforce and aging sector that I deal with is there are not a lot of policies in place to help out older Americans who are looking for work. And it is that kind of thing where, you know, we do need to scale these ideas upwards. I think that it's evident through your work and advocacy that refugee health needs to be considered a global focus. As noted in our interview with Dr. Sita, of UNRWA, the loss of funding puts organizations that assist refugees in dire straits. In the midst of handling funding challenges, what are some non-financial actions policymakers and public health officials should be taking to rectify issues facing refugees? You know, UNRWA and all the UNHCR and all of these UN agencies that are working with refugees are really in difficult situations right now, especially with the pandemic. You know, there have been a general um, anti-refugee rhetoric, if you want, globally. There have been cuts. They have had to let go of so many staff and close down a lot of their offices, especially the UNRWA office in, in Amman is really struggling in Jordan, where I come from. So I do understand 
those issues with with agencies like these who are on the ground trying to really again acutely deal with problems such as providing food providing services you know making sure people have a roof above their head so i really have the highest respect to those agencies but i think they're work has to be complementary to other sectors such as the academia and researchers that can really inform their policies and deal with the resources that they have so that they can achieve the output that they would like to achieve. So I feel more collaboration should be happening on the global landscape from different agencies. Um, we tend to feel in the academia that refugee health is not a big problem and we have our own problems. While in fact in the US, you know, we have a big refugee population that is completely untapped. So when, you know, when people listen to, to us now at this podcast and they would think, oh, refugees, it's a global problem. It's none of our business. No, in fact, a lot of, you know, historically the US has resettled more refugees than any other country in the world. It's enshrined in the foundation of this country and it's, um, you know, commitment to human rights. It's, it's by law that these people need a place to be resettled in. And usually refugees end up being resettled in, in, in their tertiary uh, destination, which is usually the U.S., Canada, and those countries that can afford resettling them. I feel that there is a lot that we can learn from each other by collaborations, like what I talked about. So you and agencies working with academia, the academia working with philanthropy, all of these have to come together. The government, of course, border agencies, you know, all people who are active players in this area should come together more and talk more. Um, unfortunately, with all the cuts in funding and all the immigration laws that are happening right now that are completely kind of sending people back home, the Remain in Mexico uh, policies, the Muslim or refugee ban policy, all of these policies, unfortunately, are not in favor of what we're trying to do here as academics and as UN agencies talking about the rights and the human rights and also the, you know, the vision of, of the fact that there will be more refugees, you know, in the future, especially with the pandemic right now. I mean, COVID-19 is increasing the inequality gap in a way that is completely unprecedented. So more people will lose their jobs, more people will be displaced, more people will have to leave their homes and look for other parts, you know, to live in within their countries, which is called internal displaced, or you know, outside their countries to become refugees or asylum seekers, etc. So displacement is an issue that people should start tackling in a different way. It is a chronic problem. We are seeing now the highest number of refugees since World War II. It's growing exponentially. And there needs to be um, a different way of attacking this problem. There needs to be more collaboration. There needs to be, everybody has to feel a moral obligation, but also be proactive in really being part of the solution. So in terms of talking about that solution, talking about the idea of what's going on when folks are resettling, we know that refugees are often healthier than the general population when they've first arrived in the U.S. typically. But then over time, they'll suffer from loneliness, social isolation, especially now with COVID-19. And there's this intergenerational trauma effect, this cycle that goes on. When we're talking about being proactive, what can be done to break up this effect? 
Right. So again, this links to the fact that we don't have enough evidence. We're not doing enough research to experiment with that, to partner with the refugee population so that we can understand better how to do that. There are so many issues with doing refugee health research that need to be addressed. So first, there is lack of funding. So my K grant that you were talking about is the first grant to, of its kind to really address this topic. Simply, donors are not seeing that refugee health is, a, is an issue that they should be interested in. Simply, they, you know, the NIH, where I got my funding, which is a sizable five-year kind of funding that will partner with a refugee population here in San Diego, the NIH is usually looking at uh, certain diseases. So it's very disease focused rather than population focused. Luckily, again, the pandemic now is shedding the light on special populations that are disproportionately suffering more than others, that are dying more than others. So now that we will start seeing this shift of you know, more population focused uh, donors coming into play, more interest in certain populations that are perishing, that are suffering more. So, you know, first, the lack of funding is a big issue. Second of all, a lot of researchers simply follow the funding first. And two, they don't want to get entangled in political issues. Why should I, you know, work with refugees, which is a hot topic, which is a certain, you know, bipartisan topic, right? So certain researchers simply don't want to do that. You know, I'd, I'd rather stick to HIV or something that has a lot of funding and it's easy to study and it's readily there and I can apply for it and get it. So pragmatically, this is what really happens in the real world. Third um, issue with doing research of this kind is that uh, simply we don't have the cultural and language competency. So most of the researchers either don't speak the language or are culturally not aware of the experiences of being a refugee. You know, in order to do such collaborative work, to be able to understand what works for a community, you should partner with that community. You should be able to be humble enough to work very collaboratively with that community, to make them part of your research team, to make them part of your leadership team, to engage them and empower them in ways you can really truly learn from them and produce research to what works for them. So back to your question, Steve, I don't think there is enough research, experimental kind of implementation science research to tell us what works and what doesn't work. And that's why we are in the problem that we are in right now, that most of the funding is going towards treating the refugee crisis as an acute crisis, as a population that will be here now, but will leave tomorrow. While in fact, we know that most refugees usually, the average for their stay in a country is 17 years. Plus, if they ever go back, we know, as you said, that um, their generations get to be affected and they stay usually in tertiary destinations where they resettled. So many of the Americans that came here came, you know, their parents came as refugees, right? And they stayed here. So intergenerational trauma is a problem. And we've seen it with other communities, communities of color, for example, what we're hearing now about the Black Lives Matter, etc. You cannot just treat a population uh, without understanding their culture very well, without being completely knowledgeable about the history, where they come from, and what kind of uh, exposures they've been subjected to. So again, I feel there's a lot of opportunity for us to study that with refugees that is not being done while we are. So going off of that, what are some shining examples of cities or organizations that are providing exceptional care to refugee populations? 
And what do you think makes them so successful? I honestly think everybody who's working with refugees is a hero because, again, those are people who are completely going after a population that is um, that we all agree is underserved, marginalized. And those are people who are going against politics, against the scant funding that's out there. So all the organizations that I work with that are trying to serve refugees are doing the best that they can. Um, however, for example, here in San Diego, we have uh, the, we are the second largest resettlement city in the United States, and I didn't know that, but we are home to half of California's refugees in San Diego. Um, and as you know, California has resettled the largest number of refugees since it's a big state. So um, I feel San Diego is doing a great job in terms of um, community organizations that are working with uh, refugees, as well as on the border. You know, here in San Diego, we're on the border with Tijuana, uh, Mexico, and uh, I feel that a lot of organizations are binational. A lot of organizations are working collaboratively to deal with a lot of issues, despite the policies that are completely discriminatory right now um, against asylum seekers from Latin America. So yeah, I have the highest respect for all these organizations on the ground that are doing most of the services. Um, at UCSD here, we have uh, the uh, new School of Public Health that I'm launching, which is really exciting. That's a whole new school with uh, migration and a focus on equity um, as a big focus um, of the school. So I'm really proud to be part of this school and I'm really proud of uh, what we are yet to achieve. Yeah, that's really exciting that you guys are setting up that new School of Public Health and that's being founded over at UCSD. Definitely congrats to all of you guys in California over there. Really quick, how do you think both academic institutions, the University of Iowa and UC San Diego could energize a cross-country collaboration to solve kind of these contemporary health problems that we're seeing crop up? Yeah, that's a great question, Steve. And I think, um, you know, when I usually tell people I studied in Iowa, they don't know what kind of school of public health I went to. Actually, Iowa, to me, is a hidden gem. You know, the school of public health is really, really well developed there. And um, when I was a student, it was uh, Dean Sue Curry, whom I'll never forget, was a great, great advocate for health equity in general, uh, was a mentor of mine. And now I know Dean Edith Parker is doing a very phenomenal job in the Midwest. I feel there is a lot to be done in terms of collaboration. I feel, uh, especially in the area of refugee health and marginalized communities and health equity in general, I feel this country has a lot to learn from each other's experiences. Um, and I feel, um, again, tackling an issue as big as refugee health or you know, marginalized communities in general, uh, we have to come together and learn from each other's experiences. I know in Iowa, there is a big focus on rural health. And I know Iowa as a state is a very important state in, in elections. So, you know, it's a very unique population that lives in Iowa that I feel could be interested in learning more about border health, refugee health in general. Um, our founding dean, Dean uh, Cheryl Anderson, who's my mentor, is a wonderful dean. Um, I feel she's very collaborative and she would love to learn more about what's happening in Iowa. And I look forward to be this link between both places. Yeah, that's excellent to hear about. And then in addition to that too, so we're talking about from an academic standpoint, 
in your estimation, what do you think would be the most meaningful path that the general public could take to educate themselves with the issues of refugees, minorities, other disadvantaged groups? How do you think best that the general public can lend a hand in this time of social distancing? Excellent point, Steve. I think, you know, again, um, usually the narrative around refugees is that there are people who are burdening our society or bringing disease or coming to, you know, to hurt us. Well, in fact, uh, this narrative has to change because it's completely false. Um, refugees who make it to the States are usually educated, are usually very motivated. They've been through the worst nightmares anybody who lives here could imagine. So they're uh, willing to start from scratch and they're willing to learn and they're very um, resilient. They really are uh, a very interesting population to learn a lot from when it comes to resilience, which I think we all need during this epidemic and what's happening with COVID-19. Um, it's very tough times that we're living in, similar to some of the stressors that refugees have had. Yet we hear a lot about stories of innovation among refugees. You know, a lot of the refugees um, end up becoming scientists and doctors and teachers and engineers. So I want us to all uh, kind of empathize with that fact and you know know that nobody is immune to becoming a refugee. And, you know, even in Iowa, uh, natural disasters could be a problem. Um, we all should know that uh, displacement is something we all can one day suffer from, especially with the pandemic and what's happening. So it's important to stop thinking of putting people in certain boxes, such as, you know, refugees. Oh, it's a certain topic in politics that I'm not interested in. I want everybody to be willing to open their heart, open their mind, listen and engage in learning about other populations and stop othering actually other population right there is a term called othering us versus them we're all in this together now with a you know pandemic and we're learning how to um that you know the pandemic cannot be controlled unless it's controlled everywhere right so if there is an outbreak in a refugee community somewhere in the Midwest or in Minneapolis and Minnesota, then an Iowan would like to know about it and would like to do something about it. So I'd like us all to start thinking like that. And I'd like us all to understand that we're living in a globalized world. The world's shrinking. The world is becoming more diverse and we should celebrate this diversity. We should be looking forward to it. And we should understand that the new generations that are coming are fresh and ready to tackle all these issues. So we have to be able to really kind of um, change our minds about things and be flexible enough to learn more and, and, and to change our minds really. What do you think is the most pressing issue in your field of research that everyone should be aware of or have common knowledge about? I think I've almost said everything that I uh, would like to say in terms of, uh, you know, how resilient refugees are. This is something that I always uh, have to educate my audiences when I give talks about. Again, we think of refugees as these impoverished people who are uneducated, can't speak language, you know, they're just oh they're miserable well in fact um no many of them were people like you and me who lost their lives completely because of reasons that are you know that they are not they were not in control of so um 
A lot of my research is showing this commonality, common humanity. A lot of my research is showing that um, they have the same health needs like most of us. Some of us actually, as Steve said, are better off than the rest of the society when they come here. They come as healthier people. But you know what happens afterwards, though, is sad because their health really deteriorates and it becomes even worse and they tend to smoke more, for example. They tend to feel more lonely and age faster, etc. So all these things we should ask ourselves as, as members of society, why does this happen and how could we be um, part of solutions for it? I think that's so important and I'm very glad that you touched on that. And for our final question of today, what is one thing you thought you knew but were later wrong about? Well, you know, as an academic, I thought, um, you know, especially at the beginning of my academic life, and I feel that you guys are students now starting this journey, I felt that um, I should follow my mentors, I should follow the path, I should follow the funding. And I thought that's my only way in, my only way to succeed in academia. Well, in fact, that's not real at all. Now, uh, most of academic institutions that are out there are looking for new ideas, people who can tackle these major challenges. I was wrong to think that my ideas didn't matter when in fact they did matter. And they really materialized into big projects and you know, funding and grants. So, um, my message to all of you today and all of the students who are listening to us and everybody actually, not just students, is that people change. You will change. Um, don't be, um, you know, don't have black or white kind of uh, standing on things. People are shades of gray. Things are shades of gray. We will always go uh, through changes. So just be open for them, to them and um, accepting of them. It's a fantastic end to everything, and I really do appreciate you coming on, giving us all this inspiring, wonderful wisdom, and we're really excited for you to take the next steps in your career. Uh, we hope that you stay safe and healthy in this time, and we look forward to chatting with you soon. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. That's our show for this week. Today's guest was Dr. Tala Al-Rusan. This episode was hosted by Emma Metter and Steve Sanye. This episode was edited and produced by Steve Sanye. If you have any questions about our show or want to suggest speakers, please reach out to us at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. Stay safe and have a great rest of your week.